I read a quote today about the book of Deuteronomy, a single sentence. And it really struck me. I mean, it just, it just, I don't know why, because this is the kind of thing that, that we've been talking about. This is why we're going through the scriptures as we are. But the, the sentence spoken, uh, written, written and spoken by J. Vernon McGee. And he said, the book of Deuteronomy touches life where we live it today. The book of Deuteronomy touches life where we live it today. Who would have thought that a book written some 3,400 years ago, given by a desert prophet to a group of people only one generation removed from slavery in a land very, very different from ours, on a different continent, who would have thought that these words could apply to you and me? And yet they do. They do. The book of Deuteronomy touches life where we live it today. So rabbis like to call him, the Lord is the eternal one who was and is and is to come. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's his spirit in whom we live and move and we have our very being today. So of course the book of Deuteronomy as well as all scripture touches life where we live it today. It makes absolute sense. If God is God and if this is his word then his word is going to touch us whatever whatever page we open to. And I've been so impressed because I, I think I mentioned before I was a little nervous going into this book. Of all the books of the Torah as we went barreling through Genesis and it was a blast and Exodus and, and Leviticus I started to discover what a great book that was and Numbers knowing there were great stories in there but Deuteronomy a retelling of everything we had already spent the last two and a half years studying I was a little nervous and yet I have found life in these words and I have found that this book does touch life where we live it today so Father tonight we seek application and Lord, we seek inspiration from the book of Deuteronomy. We seek, we seek, Father, transformation in our lives. That this wouldn't be just a casual observance. That we wouldn't wander through these chapters at a passing glance. But Father, we pray these words would take root in our hearts. And as we sang these ancient words, that they would change us and alter us. The Father, after time spent in this Word, both tonight and, Lord, week in and week out and week in and week out as we feast upon Your Word, as Your Word is found and we, and we eat it, I pray, Lord, You would change us. I do not want to be the same next year as I am today. Or the year after that, Father, as You will, as You tarry, as You wait to come, Father, it's my heart's desire that I would be, we would be different day to day as you train us up in this royal priesthood. Make application tonight, Father, of these words, I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
Well, as we continue, Moses is relating the law with incredible application to the lives of the people. And, and we've seen this. He'll, he'll go back, he'll grab one of the laws already given in Exodus, or Leviticus, or, or Numbers, and he'll pull it into the present day. And he's going to do the same thing as we continue to listen in. He'll do it tonight. He's going to give four practical areas of life. He's going to take the law and he's going to place it into Hebrew life and by extension it's going to come right into our lives in a very practical way. So you might want to watch this. We're going to cover two chapters tonight, chapter 19 and chapter 20. And the first first of the four practical areas, the first three, are in chapter 19. And I'm going to go ahead and give them to you right now and you can kind of follow these along as we study. The first one is the provision of refuge. The provision of refuge. The second one is the protection of property. So you have the provision of refuge, the protection of property, and number three, also in chapter 19, a little louder than I want it to be, so we'll just move it down. The provision of refuge, the protection of property, and number three in chapter 19, the punishment of a false witness. Punishment of a false witness. And then when we get to chapter 20, it's very cool, the preparation of a warrior. So those are the four areas tonight. Provision of refuge, protection of property, punishment of a false witness, and the preparation of a warrior. Beginning in chapter 19, verse 1. Moses says, When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God gives you, and you dispossess them and settle in their cities and in their houses, you shall set aside three cities for yourself in the midst of the land which the Lord God gives you to possess. You shall prepare the roads for yourself and divide it into three parts the territory of your land which the Lord your God will give you as a possession so that any manslayer may flee there, one of these three cities. Now, this is the case of the manslayer who may flee there and live when he kills his friend unintentionally, not hating him previously. And here Moses goes with some application. Let me give you an example of what the Lord is talking about here, Moses would say. As when a man goes into the forest with his friend to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree, and the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue the manslayer in the heat of his anger and overtake him because the way is long and take his life, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated him previously. Verse 7, Therefore I command you, saying, You shall set aside three cities for yourself. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory, just as he has sworn to your fathers, and gives you all the land which he promised to give your fathers, if you carefully observe all this commandment which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways always, then you shall add three more cities for yourselves beside these three. And we talked about this previously in Numbers 35. There were three other cities that were outside the inside of the promised land, across the Jordan on the eastern side where those, uh, those tribes who remained over there would also have cities of refuge. And verse 20 says, So innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and blood guiltiness be upon you. So the provision of refuge. And again, this law, you may recall, if you were with us when we were studying the book of Numbers, Numbers 35, verses 9 through 34, covers this in its entirety. Moses is just repeating now, he's going back to that law, drawing it in and saying, okay, you're about to go in, don't forget the cities of refuge. You'll start out with three as soon as you enter the land. It's important. In case of any accidental death, any man. 
that occurs, the person who is the manslayer, the offending party who accidentally kills somebody else, has a place that they can run, a place they can flee to, a safe place of refuge. Because, you see, there was a person in the offended family who would be called or who take, would take on the role of blood avenger. The person would say, vengeance is due. In fact, it was a common practice in the Middle East in the day. It's still a common practice embedded in Middle East culture today. If you kill someone in my family, I'm coming after you. I will avenge the death. Vengeance. Justice. I have that right. Or at least so it was thought. It was a radical idea at the time for God to introduce refuge at all. Man, if you kill someone, don't you deserve to die? That was the prevailing thought. And the Lord says, no, if it's accidental, if it's not done out of hatred, if it's not murder, but it's manslaying, then you have a place you can flee, a place of protection. The interesting thing about it was the person who would flee to those cities had to stay there, but they could stay there protected in that city until the death of the high priest. When the high priest died, that person was then free to go and he was protected against the blood avenger. The Lord providing protection for this person involved in accidental or innocent death from the blood avenger. Now, let me remind you of this. This word avenger in verse 6 of chapter 19, the word avenger is in the Hebrew an important word, a very important word that you need to have in your mind, at least in your notes. The word is ga'al, G-A with a little apostrophe A-L, ga'al in the Hebrew. It's translated avenger here, but interestingly in the book of Ruth it's translated redeemer. It is the work for the kinsman redeemer who's talked about in the book of Ruth, which we'll get to one of these days. Naomi calls Boaz the Gaal, the kinsman redeemer. He's the one who redeems uh, Ruth, and by extension Naomi as well, who draws them back into family. The, the kinsman redeemer is also the protector, which is why this word is used for both the avenger and the redeemer, because the avenger takes that role of protector. You have wronged my family. I'm coming after you. Or, in the case of Boaz, he is a redeemer. He protects the rights of people within the family. And back when we studied Numbers 35, we talked about the fact that Jesus is both the avenger and the redeemer. That Jesus takes on that role, literally, of the Gaal. And because of this, my friends, like it or not, vengeance is out of our hands. Turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Now, if we follow this, it would severely undermine Hollywood and most of the movies out today. Because we like the vengeance, don't we? We hate it when the end of the movie comes. As a matter of fact, what was the movie I was just watching recently? Oh, oh, I know what it was 24. It was season one of 24. The TV show. And you get down to the end, and was it, no, maybe it was season two, but the bottom line is the primary character in 24, and I know you're all fascinated to hear this, so I'm going to share it with you. His name is Jack Bauer. Now, Jack Bauer's wife, in the first season, I'm going to, it's a spoiler, so if you haven't seen it and you want to see it, plug your ears. In the first season, Jack Bauer's wife is murdered by the one person who you really thought was on Jack Bauer's side, this woman named Nina. Oh, she's evil. Well, in the second season, in the second season, you get down to the end, and you have Nina in this room, and she tries to kill herself, because they've captured her now, and she's, she's held there in, in, the, in the, wherever it is that they all work, the, what is it? CTU, that's right, which stands for Counterterrorism Unit. So, they have Nina there, in the Counterterrorism Unit, and they give 
talk about this in Bible study, but we are. And she's there, but she tries to commit suicide. And when she slits her own throat and the blood's shooting out, and you think, I watched it, and this was my reaction. No. No. Jack has to kill her. I need vengeance. It's not right if she kills herself and she just goes, and, and you, no, Jack's got to do it. It's, there's something in the flesh that cries out, vengeance. All the way back to the book of Genesis, when Cain killed Abel, and what did Abel's blood do? Cried out to the Lord. Vengeance. Justice. I want justice. But the Hebrew writer tells us that Jesus' blood is a better blood than the blood of Abel. Abel cries out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out mercy. And so Paul can write, Romans chapter 12, back to the Bible. Romans chapter 12, verse 14, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. You're right. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind and associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never, listen to this, never, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Wait a minute. Well, what about my rights? I have been wrong. Don't I have a right to pay back? Not according to Jesus. Not if you are in Christ. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then he really gets after it. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He is the Ja'al. He is the Redeemer, but He is the Avenger, and the vengeance is His. And Paul says, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head, and you go, All right, well, I get something out of it. <laughs> I'm going to eat some coals there by being nice. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's tough stuff. Now, I'm sure you've heard it before. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Yeah, I can quote that verse. I've heard it. But you ever have trouble sitting back and letting God take vengeance where vengeance is due? Maybe you've been hurt in your life in some way and you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, for the person who hurt you to get theirs. And you're wondering when it's going to happen. People who just seem to roll on and on and on, creating havoc wherever they go, and you look up and you say, How long? How long, Lord, how long are you going to allow this injustice to go on? There are people who are not Christians today because they look at the world and they say, How could a God allow this? How long, Lord? And there are Christians on the very edge of their faith, teetering as it were, because they're saying, how long until I am avenged? And if you've ever felt that way, you're in very good company. David wrote in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? David was a man just like us. And he said, how long? I don't get this. Well, I'm being maligned. My enemy is being lifted up. How long, Lord? The prophet Habakkuk said, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence. Yet you do not save. If you've ever felt that way, again, you're in good company. 
fact, you're in the company of people who have yet to sing this song, to cry at this cry. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, the martyrs cry. That is this awesome scene in heaven where the martyrs are under the altar and around the altar there in heaven. And they're crying out to the Lord, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Listen, when you've been hurt and when you've been abused or misused or violated in any way and you find yourself joining in with those who would cry out, How long the Lord has provided a place for you. God has a place of refuge from your hurt or your despair or your struggle or even the doubt about the full justice and righteousness of God. He has a refuge, a place you can run. Joel 3.16 tells us the Lord is a refuge for His people. And Hebrews 6.18, the writer reminds us that Jesus is the refuge to whom we fled. The Hebrew writer drawing all the way back to this idea of the cities of refuge. We have fled to Jesus. We've run to Him. And He is our refuge. And you might say, well, wait a minute. I thought the city of refuge was for the offender, not for the offended. So how can you say as the offended person, I have a refuge to run to? Okay, the moment I begin to cry out, I've been offended. The second I start to say, how long, O Lord, it's interesting, and this has been happening to me lately, a verse pops into my head. When I say, God, this isn't fair, I can hear Jesus gently, lovingly, but seriously speaking these words to his apostles. Mark nineteen or Mark nine nineteen. Oh unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? <laughs> how long shall I be with you? An almost exasperated Jesus at the faithlessness and unbelief of that generation, and I realize I am the unbelieving generation. I am the offender. That there is nothing that anyone has ever done to me that is worse than what I did to Jesus in my sin, sending him to the cross. Any offense against me is not as bad as the offense against Jesus. The offense that I place on him. Nothing has been done to me that compares to what my sin did to Jesus. I was watching the news just before I left the house tonight. And they were talking about this thing called Jesus Camp. And, and they're really getting, you know, getting onto it about how they're just indoctrinating these young children, three, four, five years old, with the fact that they're sinners. How can a how can a five year old be a sinner from birth? I mean, how, he doesn't know enough to be a sinner. I'm really going off on that. You know, whole mentality in our culture that everybody is good inherently, missing the fact that the Bible points out that from birth we have a sin nature. Even a five year old knows how to tell a lie. Even a four year old knows how to rip off the cookie without mom and dad looking. We all have that sin nature in us. We are all the offender. And every offense against us, gang, it pales in comparison to the offense to God, the picture of which is the cross. Never thought about why is the cross so ugly and so brutal and so bloody and awful? Because that's sin. That is ultimately what sin does. That's where sin takes us and that's where we should be. But Jesus, Jesus took that place. Calvary is not the result of my innocence. Calvary is the result of my blood guiltiness. But here's what's amazing about grace. When I cry unfair, when I say unjust, when our lips begin to cry that plaintive word, why? 
The Lord doesn't offer us an answer. I don't know if that's true for you. But it has been for me. When I say, why, Lord? I get silence. But something much better than an answer. When God just says, come here. Come take your refuge in me. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't give me answer. He doesn't give me excuses or reasons for the trouble that might be in my life. He just says, come here. Come to me, you who are weak and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Find your refuge in me. You know, God knows we're going to get it someday. He knows we're going to understand. And like the very patient father who knows the four-year-old child does not understand why they just got hurt. And there's no amount of explaining that will help the four-year-old understand. So God is with us. There's no amount of explaining that's going to help us understand completely. And so he doesn't even try. He just provides for us a refuge. A place we can go where we can be safe. And the picture of this game, it just... It is an awesome picture. Again, when you go to Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, and you look at the martyrs under the altar there, God's treatment of the martyrs is exactly what I'm talking about. It's a powerful picture. They're crying out, How long? They're martyrs. These are people literally who have been martyred, killed for their faith in Jesus, not by suicide bombs, but people who have been martyred simply for loving in the name of Jesus Christ, for speaking the name of Jesus Christ, for, for refusing to back down when someone said... Do you believe in God? Yes, I do. The martyrs under the throne, around the altar, and the Lord responds when they say, How long? He makes sure that every single one of them has a white robe. He dresses them, and then he says, Why don't you rest for a little while? In fact, literally, he says, Why don't you rest for a while until the rest of the martyrs who are going to join you get here? He doesn't explain to them how long. He says, you need to rest. Give me a white robe and relax in this place of refuge. But there's another side of the cities of refuge we need to address. In Israel, there was no refuge for the truly guilty. That is, if you murdered someone, you couldn't run to one of these cities of refuge and be protected. It wasn't the case for the guilty party. Verse 12 going on says, the elders... Verse 11, sorry. If if there's a man who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall descend and take him from there and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. You shall not pity him, but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel that it may go well with you. Interesting. Moses draws a very serious line. He says the city of refuge is not refuge for the guilty. Grace is not refuge for malicious sin, even today. Uh, those who would, uh, who would say, and I don't know if you've heard this phrase, but I've heard it a lot when I was living in California. I'll just first John 9, 1 9 it. I'll just first John 1 9 my sin. Well, what do you mean? First John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, I'm going to sin now. I'm going to 1 John 1, 9 it later. That is such a misunderstanding of this whole idea of grace. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make my confession. I'm going to pay my penance. And then I'm going to live as, as I please. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'll just make sure and pay up when the time comes. 
I'll go sit in the box and talk to the guy on the other side of the wall, tell him what I did, he'll tell me what I got to do, and off I go. But it's not just Roman Catholicism that I'm alluding to. It's Christians in general who would, I call it trampling grace, just walk all over grace. God gives this beautiful, absolute salvation, an absolute assurance of salvation in the blood of Jesus. And to take it and then say, I'll come confess when I need to, is trampling grace. John also says in 1 John 3, 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. It's a serious word. Because his seed, God's seed that is, abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God and it's an excellent translation. No one who is born of God practices sin. The word practices there, perfect word, very well translated, it's the Greek word poieo. I love the Greek. Poieo. And it literally means the habitual, repeated performance of sin. No one who is born of God continues in the same pattern over and over and over, practicing as it were. When I was a kid, I played the cello. Might be a surprise to some of you. For about four years, I was a cellist. Half hour to 45 minutes every day. Practice, practice, practice that I might be a better cellist. And that's what John's talking about. If you practice sin, you are not born of God. Practicing it as if to get better at it. Living a sin lifestyle where you're saying, this is what I've chosen, this is the way I want to live. Homosexual groups who would say, can be a Christian and be gay. And it's no problem. It's practicing sin. And John said, no one who's practiced, who is born of God practices sin. You can't do it and say that you're in grace. Jesus said in Matthew 7.21, and this should cause everyone to sit up and take notice, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And he says, many people will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? He is describing and defining, gang, Christians. Didn't we speak the name of Jesus and do miracles? And speak the name of Jesus and cast out demons? And speak the name of Jesus in prophecy? We did all these things. And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Don't claim that you're one of mine and continue to practice sin. In the same way, Moses warns, don't think you can practice murder and just run off to one of these cities. They will not be refuge for you. And I cannot just claim grace as refuge while I'm busy practicing sin. Verse 14 going on now to the next thing. That's the, uh, the provision of refuge now, the protection of property. And this is interesting. You shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which the ancestors have set, in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. You cannot move around your neighbor's boundary. No moving it. Here's the boundary. You'll leave it. And it was common practice. People back, they would steal land this way. And you have a, a property line with your neighbor and you go out and you just move one stake one day and not say anything about it. The next day, move another stake and now your fence is now a foot in. Especially in larger inheritance of land where you're not able to see the whole thing, very easy to start moving a fence. Boy, it seems like your property is bigger now than it used to be. No, no, it's the same. It's the same. God says, don't do it. Don't move the property boundary. 
He was very, very serious about this. In fact, he repeats it again and again. Deuteronomy 27, verse 17, he says, Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark. And I really wish Rod Gilmore was here tonight because he needs to pay attention to this. We have a we share boundary. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and all the people shall say amen. Proverbs 22, verse 28. Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Proverbs 23, verse 10. Do not move the ancient boundary or go into the fields of the fatherless. And Hosea verse, chapter 5, verse 10 says, The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. <laughs> I read this and I've seen all these verses about don't move the boundary. I'm like, how big a deal is that, Lord? I mean, I can see thou shalt not murder. There's a big one. You know, lying. You know, using the name of God in, in vain. These are, these are important things. Moving a boundary? What's the big deal, Lord? It is a big deal. It's a huge deal to God. Why? A couple of things just to consider. First thing is this. God sets the boundaries, not man. We are not the setter of boundaries. We think we are. But God is the one who sets the boundaries, even of land. Acts chapter 17, verse 26, Paul is speaking in Athens, Greece. And he says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live over all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. In other words, we own nothing. It's all God's. And he determines where we live. He puts us where He wants us. He sets the boundaries for everything. And so God sets the boundaries, not man. Speaking of boundaries, I have in my office, and I can make it available to you if you'd like to see it, a sheet of paper that we picked up at the Bridges for Peace conference last week. A sheet of paper that lists, that details 55 specific biblical references to God's unconditional promise of land to the people of Israel. 55 references, and it's not all the references to the land of Israel in the Bible, but it's 55 specific ones. And I want you to consider for a moment what has happened to every world power that has ever tried to mess with the boundary markers of Israel. What's happened to them? Go way back. Egypt went into decline almost immediately following the Exodus. Interesting. Babylon was destroyed after their captivity of the Jews. Persia that followed Babylon lasted only a short time and then only as they supported Israel's right to the land as soon as they stopped to support it their power was gone they were overthrown by a man named Alexander the Great interesting thing about Alexander the Great he died at the age of 33 another great man died at the age of 33 Alexander died weeping feeling as though he was a failure even for his great conquests and Alexander the Great brought in the Greeks and they maintained power but they lost it after they conquered Israel and began to change the boundaries. And of course the Romans' decline and fall can be tied almost directly to the years and decades immediately following A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed and the dispersion of the Jews in 135 A.D. A man whose name you probably ought to know just for biblical history, the Emperor Hadrian. And Hadrian was the one in 135 who dispersed the Jews, who drove them completely out of the land. He renamed Jerusalem Alia Capitolina. Alia was, the, was Hadrian's family name. So the capital of my family is what he tried to rename Jerusalem. What's it called today? Jerusalem. 
And he was the one, by the way, if you didn't know this, who renamed the land of Judah Philistine land, Palestine, which is where the name Palestine came from in the first place, not from Yasser Arafat and not from the Philistines themselves. They didn't own that land. The boundaries were set up by God. But coming to the last century, Hitler and Germany, the march of Hitler's Germany was horrific but it had short-lived as the whole purpose of Hitler was the destruction of Israel. To wipe out Israel. He failed. And Germany went down. Following that, Great Britain. Once a vast empire, the empire on which the sun never set, spread out larger than almost any other empire prior to it. And yet... When it opposed the return of the Jews to their homeland within, again, years, Great Britain waned in its power. What's a great world power today? Not close to what it was. Not even near what it was. And the change happened when they opposed Israel. The Soviet Union was feared throughout the world in our last generation during the Cold War. And they persecuted Jews and opposed Israel. Where's the Soviet Union now? Broken up, dispersed, many countries where there used to be one great power. America. America. I'll tell you whose side I want to be on when it all comes down as the side of Israel. Because God sets the boundaries, not man. Every major nation who has historically opposed Israel can now claim exclusive membership in the Where Are They Now Club. Because God is the setter of boundaries, not man. And I don't know what makes us think it will be different in our time. Why such a protection of their boundary rights? Why is this so important to God? Turn your Bibles just for a moment to the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 8. Ezekiel is prophesying here, the Lord speaking. You, O O mountains of Israel, will put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you will be cultivated and sown. I will multiply men on you, all the house of Israel, all of it. Pretty definite. And the cities will be inhabited, and the waste places, they'll be rebuilt. I will multiply on you man and beast, and they will increase and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as you formerly will, as you were formerly, and will treat you better than at the first. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will, by the way, I will treat you better than at the first. Israel at their best would have been under David and Solomon. At their best. They have never been back to what they were. And God promises to treat them better than at the first. Because the best is yet to come for Israel. Going on, he says... Thus you will know that I am the Lord. He says, verse 12, Yes, I will cause men and my my people Israel to walk on you and to possess you so that you will become their inheritance and never again bereave them of children. Skip on down to verse 22. And this answers the, the question why. Why is God so serious about Israel's boundary rights? He's the center of boundaries. Why is he so serious about this? Verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. 
but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned in their midst. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. I believe we're seeing it beginning today. We're seeing a massive return to Israel. But I want you to understand something here. And this was talked about just last week, and I thought it was really interesting that they pointed this out. It wasn't the fact that the Jews went into other lands as they were dispersed and went out cursing God. The verse says that you profaned the name of God everywhere you went. Not because of what they did, but because of the breaking up and the dispersion of the Jews, God's name has been profaned. The very fact that they were rebellious and driven out of the land leads other nations to go, where's their God? God of the Ten Commandments? Where is He now? How is He helping them? Hitler's whole attitude toward the Jewish people was God was not on their side. God was through with the Jew. And because God threw at the Jew, we need to wipe them out too. Because, because they were the ones who crucified our Christ. Hitler believed that. Hitler was not anti-Christian. He was anti-God. He was anti-Christ. <laughs> not, you know, little a, anti-Christ. He was against the very things of Christ, which would include the heritage of Christ, the Jewish people. But the day is fast approaching when God will vindicate His name. The Lord is serious about boundary marks because the Lord sets them in place, not man. But also, second reason He's so serious about boundaries, man moves the boundaries, not God. We're famous for it. We're the ones who move the boundary lines. And again, speaking of Israel, we're watching right now in our culture and in our time, Israel and the land for peace deals, the parceling out of land that is not theirs to parcel out. It is only God's. And I would even say this about Israel. Ehud Omer, the acting for the new prime minister in Israel, it is not his land to parcel. It is not the Knesset's land to parcel out. It is God's land to parcel. It belongs to him. He sets the boundaries. But man is so good at moving the boundaries. And what intrigues me is how satanic this really is. What do you mean satanic? Check this out. Daniel chapter 11 verse 39. Talking about Antichrist. One of the descriptions of Antichrist is that this guy will parcel out land for a price. Moving the boundaries of what is not his to move. Now I'm not calling those who cry out land, land for peace Satan. What I am saying is that it all seems to be a precursor to Antichrist. But the idea, listen to this, the idea, because this is where it gets practical for you and me, the idea of moving boundaries is very personal. Because we live in a nation of people who think we can move around the ancient boundaries, that is, the boundaries of truth. We are very good at moving truth. Or thinking we are. Avoiding the ancient boundaries. We would cry out modernity over morality. We've got to keep up with the times. Right? The times are changing. I've heard it so much in the church that it makes me sick. The times are changing. So we've got to change what we're doing. We've got to change our morality. And I've mentioned this a few times recently. People who would say, 40 years ago the church had a big problem with divorce. No problem now. So maybe 40 years from now it will be the same with homosexuality. 
It's moving the boundaries and they are not ours to move. The ancient boundaries, the ancient morality has not changed. Times may be changing, but God's eternal truth never changes. And it's always the same. Psalm 90 verse 2 tells us, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And down in verse 8, You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, for all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. And understand, brothers and sisters in Christ, that just because we are in the promised land gives us no right to move the boundaries. Just because we are walking with Christ doesn't give us the authority to say the times are changing, so we've got to change the church to meet the times. But the church is what God sets it up to be. And what God calls the church to be is holy, and that has never changed. And it will never change until the day that He returns. And then it will just become what it was supposed to be all along, more holy than it is right now. You might say, well, Rick, we're starting to get a bit legalistic in here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, you know, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, Paul's drawing this incredible picture. He says, in grace, literally, if you want to take grace to the extreme... I'm not under law anymore. So there is no law violation when I'm under grace. But he says, however, if I want to violate law while I'm under grace, it will not profit me. It's going to hurt me. We went through the Ten Commandments over a year ago. And it was interesting to talk through those things and look at the application to our lives without being legalistic. To keep the Ten Commandments not because they make me better, not because they save me, but because they do make me better. I'm already saved by grace. But by following God's commands, I don't get more salvation. But I do grow in my faith. I grow in my sense of the Lord. I understand Him a little better as I pursue the things that are important to Him. So all things may be lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. It's not legalism game. It's wisdom. John Corson puts it this way. I love this this saying. He says, if something is true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. I had to think about that, that second half especially. If it's new, it's not true. Yeah, that's true. All of the truth that we know and all we will know has always been true. There's nothing new about the truth. But when we come up with new ideas and newfangled ways of doing things, so much of the time, that's not true. And so we go back to places like Deuteronomy and we hedge our faith in the scriptures because it's solid and it's absolute and it is true. The boundaries of both land and truth are set by God. Let's not presume to change them. Verse 15, reading on. You shall, oh, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. We just studied this. Verse 16, if a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. (laughs) That will shut down some line, won't it? 
was found out that you're a false witness, whatever you're witnessing falsely about, that's now your punishment. And he says, you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will hear and will be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. So number three on our outline, the punishment of a false witness. Punishment of a false witness. It's number nine on the list, by the way, of the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness. Exodus 20, verse 16. And this idea of a false witness, this really gets to me personally. Not only because it's one of the most insidious sins among Christians. You remember talking about this, those of you who are here, we looked at this, that bearing false witness we do so easily, so subtly in our relationships. We can repeat word for word what someone else has said, exactly as they said it, but raise a single eyebrow as we speak it and change the meaning completely. That's very false witness. We're good at it. I want to I want to pray for this person, but let me explain the situation first. I'm really concerned for for this sister because you know what she said. She said, <laughs> and we change the meaning and we bear false witness. But gang, the violation of this commandment, that is the false witness, the violation of this directly preceded Jesus' crucifixion. Doesn't surprise me that it's one of the Ten Commandments. Because this is what led Jesus to the cross ultimately. Matthew chapter 26. In fact, I'm going to read this to you quickly. Matthew 26. Verse 59. Tells us when the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward, but later on two came forward. And they said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Jesus said that. He did. But the voice inflection changed. I think they might have added one word in there. Their eyebrows probably were raised as they said it. I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days, said the false witness. And the high priest stood up and he said to Jesus, Do you not answer? What is it then that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter that you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, He's blaspheming. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. And what do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. With subtle implications, voice inflections and changes, the false witnesses quoted Jesus' words in such a way as to bend the truth and bring about their desired result, which was his death. False witnesses. But what's interesting is according to Deuteronomic law, in verse 19, back in chapter 19, the false witness was supposed to bear the punishment of the falsely accused. And yet in Jesus' case, in Jesus' case, we see it completely different. That he bore the punishment even of those false witnesses at Calvary. We have a picture of this in Old Testament scripture, the book of Esther, a story about Haman and Esther and Mordecai. And Haman was an early anti-Semite and wanted to see the Jews wiped out in his day. So he had gallows built 50 feet high on which to hang Mordecai and he set up a situation of false witness. But when the truth came out, 
His false testimony was used against him, and Haman was hanged on the gallows that were meant for Mordecai. You shall not bear false witness. A false witness for the punishment of the falsely accused. But again, in Jesus' case, the falsely accused knowingly went on to bear the punishment of the false witness, and such is grace. Such is grace. Here's a thought. One of those men who falsely accused Jesus within weeks of the crucifixion could very likely have become Christians because Jesus took their place. Just like he took your place. Just like he took mine. By the way, it's grace that drives verse 21 if you read on. Thus you shall not show pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And you might say, that does not sound like grace. How can you say that that is grace? Because before grace came through Jesus, there was only the law to deter people from sin. That's all that the people had. And so the law had very strict punishment. Why? Because God wanted to deter from sin. Why? Because He wanted to show mercy to the people. And so the law itself was the closest thing to mercy the people possibly could have until grace came through Jesus Christ. And so God gives this deterrent to keep people from false witnessing and Moses declares no pity for the false witness. Now we get to number four. The preparation of a warrior. Now listen closely because this preparation is probably not what you would imagine. If you were going to mount an army, I don't think he would prepare them this way. Verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel! You're approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. You can almost hear someone back in the back of the crowd go, Why? And he says, verse 4, For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. The priest was to remind the people before going into battle, don't shrink back in terror. Don't be afraid. You see a massive host against you, probably bigger than you've got. Don't be afraid because you've got God on your side. And it's interesting here, Moses doesn't say if you approach an enemy in battle. He says you are approaching an enemy in battle. You're going to go into battle, Israel. It's going to happen. This is not an if, it's a win. And when it happens, the priests are to stand up and call the people to toughen up and get ready to go and not to shrink back in terror because the Lord is with them. And up to this point, up to this point, the track record was pretty good for the, for the Jewish people. So here's a great but unexpected way to prepare for battle. Enjoy your exemption. If you happen to be a part of the army, enjoy your exemption. What do you mean by that? There were three situations now listed here, beginning in verse 5, three situations that would exempt a man from going to war. Watch this, verse 5. The officers also shall speak to the people, saying, Who is the man who has built a new house and is not dedicated? Let him depart and return to his house, otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would dedicate it. So you're exempt. You just build a house, you don't have to go to war. Number six, verse six. Who is the man that has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit? Let him depart and return to his house, otherwise he might die in the battle and another man will begin to use its fruit. 
You got a vineyard? Go home and make wine. You're exempt from the battle. This is preparation for a band of warriors? Yeah, read on. It says in verse 7, And who is the man that is engaged to a woman and has not married her? Let him depart and return to his house, otherwise he might die in the battle, and another man would marry her. So three exemptions here. You build a new house, go home. You got a new vineyard? Go use it. You get married? Go spend time with your wife. And don't waste your time in war. How does exemption from battle prepare for battle? And we're going to talk about this a little more in depth on Sunday. But it appears that with the Lord, delight precedes dedication. Blessing is to come before the battle. That there's something about how God wants you to enjoy what He has for you first, before the battle comes. Matthew 7 11, speaking of the heart of the Father, Jesus says, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And if you think about it, this kind of exemption is great preparation for a warrior. Because by the time the man goes to battle, he's already enjoyed the home of his building. He's already been able to taste the fruit of his vineyard. And he's already spent time and and delighted in the wife of his marriage. He's got all those things done. It's good. And now, guess what? He's got something to fight for. He's got something to fight for. I have a wife waiting for me. And I want to go home to her. And I love her. And I've spent time with her. And she is my delight. And I want to see her again. And in the midst of battle, boy, those, those grapes on the vines are so tasty. And it's spread out, and I want to go home and taste again. And I remember my home. But how many of you, after being on a long journey, just like to walk in the front door? It's great motivation to fight well. You're refreshed, you're filled, you're rested, you're ready to go. And the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 4.10, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. But there's a fourth exemption. One more type of person who is exempt from going to battle, and it's in verse 8. And then the officer shall speak further to the people and say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. So if you built a new house... If you have a vineyard that's new, if you're newly married or about to get married, and if you're chicken. Okay? That's the fourth one. You're scared? Go home. We don't want you here. You're going to turn tail and run anyway. Go ahead and do it now before we engage. Go home, scary cat. If there's fear in your heart, we don't want you in the battle. Why? Because fear is contagious. And you will impact and you will affect the people around you. A lack of faith, gang, it always betrays an internal cowardice. Because where there is fear, faith is lacking. And it's bad for the whole army. I mentioned before, a kid in my youth group in California, a football player, had a t-shirt that said, Go hard or go home. And I love that t-shirt. Go hard or go home. Be tough. Or don't even get on the field. Be ready to fight. But if you're faint of heart, get off the field. One of my favorite verses I quoted off in Hebrews 10.39, We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. We're ready to fight. We don't shrink back. We go forward. And if you feel like shrinking, if you feel fearful, go home. 
Go home until the fear goes away. Verse 9, when the officers have finished speaking to the people, they shall appoint commanders of armies at the head of the people. Now what's interesting here is in these four exemptions, what Moses is doing is tearing down the army. He's toughening up the army. He's, as it were, clearing the chaff. Anyone whose head is not going to be in the battle, he's saying, go home, rest, take it easy there, don't come fight until you're ready to fight. And that's what the Lord often does. We see this in the example of Gideon's army. Remember Gideon? We'll read about him in the book of Judges. That great story about this, this man who God calls to lead the army of Israel. And they go out and they're, they're huge in number. 32,000 ready to go out and fight the Midianites. And God says, you know what? It's too many. And so in Judges chapter 7... He says, verse 3, Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. And so out of 32,000, 22,000 went home. Gideon must have been watching them go going, Oh no, oh no, it's it's not good. This is not good. He's left with 10,000 men. Alright, alright, but God's going before us. And God goes, no, that's too many. Too many? We're already vastly outnumbered. Yeah, but you've got to be vastly, vastly outnumbered for me to show my stuff. So let's tear it down to 300 men. <laughs> and so with 300 men, and then God does something more than that. He says, hey Gideon, lay down your arms. Huh? You know, once you get some pots and some, some you know, torches, put the torches in the pots. And let's go to battle. What? Why? Because the Lord who goes before you will win the fight. Amen. Not you. And so he tears down the army. He takes it down to a little manageable host, a host that is scared to death and scared enough to look to their commander, who is the Lord. We also see, interesting, when Joshua first comes into the land, Joshua chapter 5, he runs into someone, a very interesting character in the Bible, who is just called the captain of the Lord's host. And Joshua says, whose side are you on? Are you for us or are you for the enemy? And he goes, I'm not for either one of you, I'm for myself. Captain of the Lord's host. Who is that? I think it's Jesus. Personally. Can't prove it. But I think it is. And he says, Joshua, I'll tell you how to fight. And I will go before you. And I'll take the Lord's host before you. Good news. The Lord loves to go before you. And he never asks us to go anywhere. He hasn't already been. Now, check this out. Some of you, like Joshua, are still going to be called to lead. And when you're called to lead in the Lord's army, if you're called to command, if you're called to be up front, is it on your heart to be a servant leader in in some kind of ministry, maybe here at the bridge? If God is calling you to lead, listen, there are four great questions to consider, and they have to do with all four of these exceptions. Here they are. Go back through these and think about your own preparation for war. How's your household? Is it strong? Well built? Is there a foundation there? How is the fruit of your vineyard? In other words, what kind of fruit is apparent in your life? How's your marriage? Are you happy? Is there unity and strength? And is your heart afraid or is it full of faith? Now please hear me on this. This is not condemnation. If any of these things are in disarray in our lives, it is not condemnation on the part of the Lord. It's fatherly compassion. What God would say is before you step up to lead, go home and take care of what you need to take care of. Listen, the Lord would rather your marriage be strong than you be some big elder standing up on stage at a church. 
The Lord would rather that your family and your household be secure than that you can preach a thousand sermons. The Lord would rather that there is fruitfulness, spiritual fruit in your life than that you're off shooting off your mouth or playing on the worship team or serving in some other way. He would rather things be right in your heart. Then, then come out and fight. Because then, you'll truly be ready to fight. He wants your family, your faith, and your fruit to be good. Going on, verse 10 says, When you approach a city and fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. This was a new thing. This is not done back in those days. To offer peace first. And if it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And he's talking, by the way, about countries or, or nations outside of the Promised Land, because you may recall, in the Promised Land, God said, wipe them out. I'm giving you this land. Any nation that's within this land, you are completely wiped out, take off the land, destroy them. But when they fight battles against other nations outside of Israel in the future, he says you you approach them with peace first. And then, if they don't want to make peace, you besiege them. Verse 13, when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men with it, in it, with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as booty for yourself. And you shall use the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. And thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of of these nations here nearby. Again, it's a new concept. Peace offered first. We're going on verse 16. Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. You shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite as the Lord your God has commanded you so that they may not teach you to do all according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods so that you would not sin against the Lord your God. And again, people read this and they say that's awfully harsh. Old Testament God stuff, not New Testament graceful, gentle, merciful God stuff. Not so. Bible students, how many years did the people in the land of Canaan have to repent before God leveled this judgment? 400. 400 years. We see that back in Genesis chapter 15. For four generations, each generation being at that time 100 years God waited, keeping Israel in Egypt, so that the people of Canaan could decide, could repent, could turn from their wickedness. But 400 years into it, they were so wicked, they were like a dog with rabies, and what do you do? You put them down. You mercifully put them out of their misery. And that's exactly what God called for in the land of Canaan. Israel wasn't going to Canaan because they were such a great people. Israel was God's tool of judgment against the people who were there. Verses 19 and 20, as we finish out, are very cool. So if you checked out a second ago, check back in because you've got to hear this. Verse 19, when you besiege a city, a long time, to make war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an axe against them. (laughs) Seems kind of obscure. For you may eat from them, and you shall not cut them down. For is the tree of the field a man... That it should be besieged by you? Only the trees, which you know are not fruit trees, you shall destroy and cut down, that you may construct siege works against the city that is making war with you until it falls. Now that makes absolute sense. Don't cut down the fruit trees of the land that you're besieging because you're going to need the fruit trees for fruit. 
Use them for food, but if there's no fruit, then cut them down and you can use them in your war. Now, it seems like a very simple, practical thing. What does it have to do with me today? And it's so important to hear this. Because it goes back to the whole vengeance idea we talked about earlier. In the midst of battle, what Moses is saying to the Israelites is, don't let the axe fly indiscriminately. Don't be out there so flailing, so wild, so out of control that you're cutting down the very things that are helping you or providing for you in the battle. What does that mean for us? Listen, if there's a tree bearing fruit, don't cut it down. If there's a tree bearing fruit, don't cut it down. You ever find yourself looking at other Christians, maybe with another church or another denomination, and not, I'm talking about believers in Jesus Christ, but may believe doctrinally different than you on some issues. Not salvation issues, not whether or not Jesus is who the Bible says he is, God incarnate, but just different perspective. Maybe you're a conservative politically as a Christian, and you know another Christian who's one of those liberals, and you can't figure out how they can possibly be that way. The Bible would tell us don't cut down the fruit tree. There's fruit. Don't cut it down. Don't let the axe fly. Don't cut down others who are there to help. If there's fruit there, as Jesus said, Peter, put away your sword. What was Peter doing when Jesus said, put away your sword? (laughs) He was flailing wildly. They were in the garden. Join them there. They were in the garden, and Peter and the apostles were confused, and the Roman hosts were in front of them. And they began to take Jesus, and Peter said, No way! And he grabbed the sword and just... How do we know he was flailing? Because he had the sword in his right hand, and he cut off the, the opposite ear of Malchus, so he was not going for the heart or the head, he was just swinging. And he caught the right ear of a slave. By the way, real effective choice there, Peter. Cutting off the right ear of the servant of the high priest, because he was the most dangerous guy in the crowd, wasn't he? Peter wasn't thinking, he was acting out of control, he was wild. Malchus, the guy whose ear was cut off, and I believe, by the way, the reason we're told his name is Malchus is because Malchus later became a Christian. So John inserts that in his gospel, written 60 years after the fact, inserts that, oh yeah, his name was Malchus, and so the people could read it and go, that was, your ear looks fine. Well, yeah, you should have seen what Jesus did. (laughs) It's very cool. But Malchus was no danger. He was no threat. Wes and I had a conversation about this recently where we were both getting kind of kind of heated about a doctrinal issue of, of, of some other people in the region. I'm not going to go into what it was, but we're going, yeah, we got to deal with this. we got to be clear and talk about the truth and what the Bible really has to say about this. And by the way, we were right. <laughs> but you know what? There are Christian people who have different doctrines than me, different theology, still believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but see things differently than I do. And they may even be wrong, but they're bearing fruit for the Lord. Don't cut them down. Don't cut them down. Jesus said, you know, let them be. They're not against me. They're for me. Okay? Yeah, but Jesus, the apostles, they're they're preaching in your name. They're they're healing people in your name. Well, yeah, it's not a bad thing. (laughs) For other people to be doing it, apostles, you're not the only ones who God can work through and use. The bridge isn't the only fellowship. There are many ways and many places that God is working. 
Now granted, if there's no fruit, cut it down. <laughs> and what I'm talking about, seriously, is as we've studied recently, there are heresies out there. There is pagan teaching. There is idolatry even within the church. And those things I will point out. Now I have to be careful because I have a tendency probably to go more in the direction of, of swinging Peter's sword. You know, because I, I like standing on Scripture. And I like the absolutes. But if there is fruit, especially spiritual fruit, let the tree stand. Paul put it this way. He was speaking to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. He said, Timothy, pursue righteousness and godliness and faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And then he inserts this phrase, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. How do I fight the good fight, Paul? Well, Paul just told him. Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And, of course, be sure to point out the errors of every person or church who don't agree with you. I've tried to find that, and it's not there. Now, you pursue love, gentleness. Fight with gentleness? Absolutely. For the Lord is growing such fruit in and among us that this fruit that He's growing right now will be there for us to feed off of when we come into the promised land. The goodness, the faithfulness, the love that's in us, we're going to enjoy together into the millennium and on into eternity after that. Truly, the book of Deuteronomy touches life where we live it today. Father, I pray that you would just bless these words and the teaching of your word tonight, Lord. I pray that we would be people who are not swinging the axe. Father, I pray that we would be those who are looking for the fruit and bearing spiritual fruit ourselves. That we would live by love and joy and peace, patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That we would be among those who are looking for the fruit. Father, that when we fight as warriors, on this earth who would fight as those who truly are pursuing Jesus and living for you. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for all that there is to learn in it. And I pray that you just keep leading us on this journey until you come. In Jesus' precious name, amen.